Chapter 6 of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. Chapter 6 The Regent's Daughter. Many unwomanly women have played their parts in the drama of royal courts, but scarcely one, not even those Mezzalinas, Catherine II of Russia and Christina of Sweden, conducted herself with such a shameless disregard of conventionality as Marie-Louise Elizabeth d'Orléans, known to fame as the Duchesse de Berry, who probably crowded within the brief space of her years more wickedness than any woman who was ever cradled in a palace. It is said that this libertine de Duchesse was mad, and certainly he would be a bold champion who would try to prove her sanity. But, apart from any question of a disordered brain, there was a taint in her blood sufficient to account for almost any lapse from conventional standards of pure living. Her father was that Duc d'Orléans who shocked the none-too-straight-laced Europe of two centuries ago by his orgies. Her grandfather was that other Orléans Duke, brother of Louis Fourteenth whose passion for his minions broke the heart of his English wife, the Stuart Princess Henrietta, and she had for mother one of the daughters of Madame de Montespan, light a love to Le Roi Solier. The offspring of such parents could scarcely have been normal, and how far from normal Marie-Louise was, this story of her singular life will show. When her father, the Duc de Chartres, took to wife Mademoiselle de Bois, Montespan's daughter, there were many who significantly shrugged their shoulders and curled their lips at such a union, and one, at least, the Duke's mother, Elizabeth Charlotte, Princess Palatine, was undisguisedly furious. She refused point-blank to be present at the nuptials, and when her son, fresh from the altar, approached her to ask her blessing, she retorted by giving the bridegroom a resounding slap on the face. Such was the ill-omened opening to a wedded life which brought nothing but unhappiness with it, and which gave to the world some of the most degenerate women, in addition to a son who was almost an idiot, who have ever been cradled. The first of these degenerates was Marie Elizabeth, who was born one August day in the year 1695, and who from her earliest infancy was her father's pet and favorite. His idolatry of his firstborn child, indeed, is one of the most inscrutable things in a life full of the abnormal, and in later years afforded much material for the tongue of scandal. He was inseparable from her. Her lightest wish was law to him. He nursed her through her childish illnesses with more than the devotion of a mother, and as she grew to girlhood he worshipped at the shrine of her young beauty with the adoration of a lover and put her charms on canvas in the guise of a pagan goddess. The Duke's affection for his daughter, indeed, was so extravagant that it was made the subject of scores of scarless lampoons, to which even Voltaire contributed, and was a delicious morsel of ill-natured gossip in all the salons and cabarets of Paris. At fifteen, the princess was already a woman, tall, handsome, well-formed, with brilliant eyes and the full lips eloquent of a sensuous nature. Already she had had her initiation into the vices that proved her undoing, for in a court noted for its free living, she was known for her love of the table and the wine bottle. Such was the Duke's eldest daughter when she was ripe for the altar, and became the object of an intrigue in which her scheming father, the royal duchesses, 
the Duc de Saint-Simon, the king himself, and the Jesuits all took a part, and the prize of which was the hand of the young Duc de Berry, a younger son of the Dauphin, the grandson of King Louis. Over the plotting and counterplotting, the rivalries and jealousies which followed, we must pass. It must suffice to record that the king's consent was at last won by the Orléans faction. Madame de Maintenon was persuaded to smile on the alliance, and one July day the nuptials of the Duc de Berry and the Orléans princess were celebrated in the presence of the royal family and the court. A regal supper followed, and, the last toast drunk, the young couple were escorted to their room with all of the stately, if scarcely decent, ceremonial, which in those days inaugurated the life of the newly wedded. Seldom has there been a more singular union than this of the Duc d'Orléans' prodigal daughter with the almost imbecile grandson of the French king. The Duc de Berry, it is true, was good to look upon. Tall, fair-haired, with a good complexion and splendid health, he was physically, at age twenty-four, no unworthy descendant of the great Louis. He had, too, many amiable qualities calculated to win affection, but he was mentally little better than a clown. His education had been shamefully neglected. He had been suppressed and kept in the background until, in spite of his manhood, he had all the shyness, awkwardness, and dullness of a backward child. As he himself confessed to Madame de Saint-Simon, they have done all they could to stifle my intelligence. They did not want me to have any brains. I was the youngest, and yet ventured to argue with my brother. Afraid of the results of my courage, they crushed me. They taught me nothing except to hunt and gamble. They succeeded in making a fool of me, one incapable of anything, and who will yet be the laughingstock of everybody. Such was the weak-kneed husband to whom was now allied the most precocious, headstrong young woman in all France and who, although still short of her sixteenth birthday, was a past mistress of the arts of pleasure, and was now determined to have her full fling at any cost. She'd been thoroughly spoiled by her too indulgent father, who was even then the most powerful man in France after the king, and she was in no mood to brook restraint from anyone, even from Louis himself. The pleasures of the table seemed now to have absorbed the greater part of her life. Read what her grandmother, the Princess Palatine, says of her. Madame de Berry does not eat much at dinner. How, indeed, can she? She never leaves her room before noon, and spends her mornings in eating all kinds of delicacies. At two o'clock she sits down to an elaborate dinner, and does not rise from the table until three. At four she's eating again, fruit, salad, cheese, etc. She takes no exercise, whatever. At ten she has a heavy supper, and retires to bed between one and two in the morning. She likes very strong brandy. And in this last sentence we have the true secret of her undoing. The royal princess was, even at this early age, a confirmed dipsomaniac, with her brandy bottle always by her side, and was seldom sober from rising to retiring. To such a woman, a slave to the senses, a husband like the Duc de Berry, unredeemed by a vestige of manliness, could make no appeal. She wanted men to pay her homage, and like Catherine of Russia, she had them in abundance, lovers who were only too ready to pay court to a beautiful princess, who might one day be queen of France. For the Dauphin was now dead. His eldest son, the Duc de Bourgogne, had followed him to the grave a few months later. Prince Philip had renounced his right to the French crown when he accepted that of Spain. And between her husband and the throne, there was now but one frail life, 
that of the three-year-old Duc d'Anjou, a child so delicate that he might easily not survive his great-grandfather Louis, whose hand was already relaxing its grasp of the scepter he had held so long. On the intrigues with which this queen in posse beguiled her days, it is perhaps well not to look too closely. They are unsavory, as so much of her life was. Her lovers succeeded one another with quite bewildering rapidity, and with little regard either to rank or good looks. One special favorite of our sultana was La Haye, a court equerry whom she made chamberlain, and who is pictured by Saint-Simon as tall, bony, with an awkward carriage and an ugly face, conceited, stupid, dull-witted, and only looking at all passable when on horseback. So infatuated was the Duchesse with her ill-favored equerry that nothing less would please her than an elopement to Holland, a proposal which so scared La Haye that in his alarm he went forthwith to the lady's father and let the cat out of the bag. Why on earth does my daughter want to run away to Holland? The Duke exclaimed with a laugh. I should have thought she was having quite good enough time here. And so would anyone else have thought. And while his duchesse was thus dallying with her multitude of lovers and stupefying herself with her brandy bottle, her husband was driven to his wit's end by her exhibitions of temper, as by her infidelities. In vain he stormed and threatened to have her shut up in a convent. All her retort was to laugh in his face and order him out of her apartment. Violent scenes were everyday incidents. The last one, says Saint-Simon, was at Rambouillet, and by a regrettable mishap the Duchesse received a kick. The Duke's laggard courage was spurred to fight more than one duel for his wife's tarnished fame. Of one of these sorry combats, Maurepas writes, her conduct with her father became so notorious that His Grace the Duc de Berry, disgusted at the scandal, forced the Duc d'Orléans to fight a duel on the terrace at Marly. They were, however, soon separated, and the whole affair was hushed up. But release from such an intolerable life was soon coming to the ill-used Duke. One day, when hunting, he was thrown from his horse and ruptured a blood vessel. Fearful of alarming the king, now nearing the end of his long life, he foolishly made light of his accident, and only consented to see a doctor when it was too late. When the doctors were at last summoned, he was a dying man, his body drained of blood, which was later found in bowls concealed in various parts of his bedroom. With his last breath, he said to his confessor, Ah, Reverend Father, I alone am the real cause of my death. Thus, one May day in 1714, the Duchesse found herself a widow, within four years of her wedding day and the last frail barrier was removed from the path of self-indulgence and low passion to which her life was dedicated. When, with the aged king's death the following year, her father became regent of France, her position as daughter of the virtual sovereign was now more splendid than ever, and before she had worn her widow's weeds a month, she had plunged again still deeper into dissipation, with Madame de Mouchy, one of her waiting women, as chief minister to her pleasures. It was at this time, before her husband had been many weeks in his grave, that the Comte de Riome, the last and most ill-favored of her many lovers, came on the scene. Nothing but a perverted taste could surely have seen any attraction in such a lover as this grand-nephew of the Duc de Lausanne, of whom the austere and disapproving Palatine Duchess draws the following picture. He has neither figure nor good looks. He is more like an ogre than a man, with his face of greenish-yellow. He has the nose, eyes, and mouth of a Chinaman. He looks, in fact, more like a baboon than the Gascon he really is. 
Conceited and stupid, his large head seems to sit on his broad shoulders owing to the shortness of his neck. He is short-sighted and altogether is preternaturally ugly, and he appears so ill that he might be suffering from some loathsome disease. To this unflattering description, Saint-Simon adds the fact that his large pasty face was so covered by pimples that it looked like one large abscess. Such, then, was the repulsive lover who found favor in the eyes of the regent's daughter, and for whom she was ready to discard all her legion of more attractive wooers. With the coming of Derriome, the Duchesse entered on the last and worst stage of her misspent life. Strange tales are told of the orgies of which the Luxembourg, the splendid palace her father had given her, was now the scene, orgies in which Madame de Mouchy and a Jesuit, one Father Ringlet, took a part, and over which the evil de Riome ruled as Lord of Mary Disports. The Duchesse, now sunk to the lowest depths of degradation, was the veriest puppet in his strong hands, flattered by his coarse attentions, and submitting to rudeness and ridicule such as any grisette, with a grain of pride, would have resented. When these scandalous carryings-on at the Luxembourg Palace reached the regent's ears, and he ventured to read his daughter a severe lecture on her conduct, she retaliated by snapping her fingers at him and telling him in so many words to mind his own business and to the tongue of scandal that found voice everywhere she turned a contemptuous ear. She even locked and barred her palace gates to keep prying eyes at a safe distance. But although she thus defied man, she was powerless to stay the steps of fate. Her health, robust as it had been, was shattered by her excesses, and when a serious illness assailed her, she was horrified to find death so uncomfortably near. In her alarm she called for a priest to shrive her, and the Abbe Languet came at the summons to bring her the consolations of the church. He refused point-blank, however, to give the sinner absolution, until the palace was purged of the presence of Derriome and Madame de Mouchy, the arch-partners in her vices. To this suggestion, the Duchesse, perilous as her condition was, returned an uncompromising no. If the abbé would not absolve her, well, there were other priests, less exacting, who would and one such priest of elastic conscience, a Franciscan friar, was summoned to her bedside. Then ensued an unseemly struggle around the dying woman's bed, in which the regent, Cardinal Noailles, Madame de Mouchy, and the rival clerics all played their parts. While the obliging friar remained in the room awaiting an opportunity to administer the last sacrament, the abbé and his curates kept watch at the bedroom door to see that he did no such thing, and thus the siege lasted for four days and nights, until, the patient's crisis over, the services of the church were summarily dispensed with. With the return of health, the Duchesse's piety quickly evaporated. It is true that she had had a fright, and by way of modified penitence, she vowed to dress herself and her household in white for six months and also to make a husband of her lover. Within a few weeks, Derriome led the regent's daughter to the altar, thus throwing the cloak of the church over the license of the past. Now that our princess was once more a respectable woman, she returned gladly to her old life of indulgence, until the Duchess Palatine exclaimed in alarm, I am afraid her excesses in drinking and eating will kill her. And never was prediction more sure of early fulfillment. When she was not keeping company with her brandy bottle, she was gorging herself with delicacies of all kinds, from patties and fricassees to peaches and nectarines, washed down with copious drafts of iced beer. As a last desperate effort to reform her, at the eleventh hour, the regent packed Derriome off to his regiment, 
A few days later, the Duchesse invited her father to a sumptuous banquet on the terrace at Meudon, at which, regardless of her delicate health, she ate and drank more voraciously than ever. The same evening she was taken ill, and when, on the following Sunday, her mother-in-law, the Duchess, visited her, she found the patient in a deplorable condition, wasted to a shadow and burning with fever. She was suffering such horrible pains in her toes and under her feet, says the Duchess, that tears came to her eyes. She looked so very bad that three doctors were called in consultation. They resolved to bleed her, but it was difficult to bring her to it, for her pains were so great that the least touch of the sheets made her shriek. A few days later, in the early hours of 17th July, 1719, the Duchesse de Berry passed away in her sleep. The life which she had wasted in such shameless prodigality closed in peace, and at the moment when she was being laid to rest in the church of Saint-Denis, Madame de Mouchy, blazing in the dead woman's jewels, was laughing merrily over her champagne glass at a dinner party to which she had invited all the sharers in the orgies which had made the Palace of the Luxembourg infamous. The moral of this pitifully squandered life needs no pointing out, and on reviewing it one can only in charity echo the words spoken by Madame de Melluret of another sinner, the Chevalier de Savoie. For my part, I believe the good God must think twice before sending one born of such parents to the nether regions. End of chapter 6. Recording by Colleen McMahon.